My name is Mike Shanahan. I'm a freelance consultant based in Folkestone. I, I work with EJN a couple of days a month on a project looking at illegal wildlife trade. Um, in a previous job, I worked at the International Institute for Environment and Development, and it was with James that we set up the Climate Change Media Partnership. So I've been working with James for about 12 years, um, and you saw on the video some of the people that we've been, we've been working with over that period. To my right is Naveen Kadka, who is a multilingual correspondent, environmental correspondent for the BBC World Service. He's based in London. James, you know, is the executive director of the Earth Journalism Network. James Painter, to his right, is at the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism. That's one of his hats. I believe you have others. And Mona Samari, at the end, is a consultant, a fisheries expert, and a trainer of investigative journalists. Is that correct? Great. Well, welcome, everybody. If you have questions as we're going along that relate to anything that the panelists have said, then please just put your hand up or shout out, because we're quite a small group, and you can accommodate that. If you have questions that relate to things we haven't mentioned, we'll have some time at the end. Okay? I think we've got about one hour. Is that right, James? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> and James Fine, I'd like to start with you, please, because one of the um, things that you said earlier is that the purpose of EJN is to improve the quality and the quantity of environmental journalism around the world. And I think definitely in the last 10 years or so, or in the time that you've been doing this work, the, the quantity has certainly improved everywhere, and EJN has played an important part in that. Uh, the quality, though, is another question. And I wonder, can you, can you tell me what quality means in environmental journalism? And also, do we need more quantity at this stage, or do we need different kinds of stories now? Yeah, good questions that we often think about. Um, I think more is always better. So I think quantity, there's certainly room to grow. Uh, there are plenty of media outlets that don't do enough. Uh, and a lot of them, actually, I found, you know, they ebb and flow. And, and ironically, it's often when we have, like, uh, say, shall we say, right-wing governments in office or that we see the most climate coverage, like right now. I mean, for instance, under the Trump administration, U.S. We've seen really good growth in climate coverage, uh, obviously, and I, you can you can imagine why. Um, in terms of quality, I mean, it's very hard to generalize in terms of quality, and we do try and measure. Sometimes, if we have if we have the money to do proper monitoring and evaluation, we can you know do content analysis on stories, kind of look at. Uh, what a journalist produces before a training and after, or before, you know, uh, and, and come up with a, a framework to, to measure that. So, I mean, uh, some, but that's pretty rare that we have the ability to do that. So, I guess I'm, this is more of a, you know, uh, impression I have. Uh, I do think uh, climate change journalism and other types of environmental journalism has grown in sophistication. I don't, I tend uh, not to see as many errors, like, you know, blaming every storm on climate change, or I see, uh, and, and kind of from the reverse side, what I think is really important is when you have stories on related issues, like a story on a, a big storm or a hurricane, there was just um, just a story I think I saw in the last couple of days about a, a big hurricane forming in the Atlantic near the Azores. Apparently, there's never been a hurricane as, uh, you know, it's so far north and east in the Atlantic and could actually threaten the Irish coast. 
And I think in the past, when you had that kind of story, they may or they may not mention climate change, but in this case, they did mention it, and they and they explained that you can't blame necessarily a single storm on climate change, which is correct. But they also explained that you know climate changes make are making the oceans warmer and making such storms more likely and, and stronger. So I think we're seeing not just better and better quality climate stories, but also more sophisticated coverage that includes climate and other types of stories. And I think we do need a lot more of that. And, uh, and that's uh, where I was talking with Johnny earlier today about how, you know, we need to come at these topics, not just, you know, uh, through an environment story, but through all types of stories. The stories about food, about travel, about gardening, about things people are interested in, things that will that they that affect their daily lives, about housing. Uh, you know, it's a real estate issue. There are so many different ways. Of course, it's such a big story. There's so many different ways we can approach it, and I think that's how we'll really kind of move the needle. That's the, I don't know if you're a rugby fan, and anyone in the room, but it's the Rugby World Cup at the moment, and I saw a story yesterday that was talking about the, the threats to island states in the Pacific, and it was linking the World Cup um, with with climate change in a way that I've not seen done before, because many of the countries that are playing in the World Cup are from the Pacific, they're at risk, and they were quoting rugby players talking about this. So, wow, great, what an opportunity. That's amazing. Uh, uh, I've seen skiing, good skiing stories about climate change, obviously, that's an industry that's threatened by... Yeah, it's disappearing, yeah, isn't yeah. it? Does anyone else have any examples of these uh, uh, cases where you can talk about the environment and not just climate change, but the environment in and attracting new audiences maybe? Well, I think the sport one is really good. It isn't just that um, rugby one. There's been a series, uh, there was a big report, I think, uh, about a year ago, wasn't there, showing how cricket uh, and a number of grounds uh, around the world would be subject to more flooding or more extreme weather that would really affect people's love of cricket. I thought that was fantastic. There was been, been one on football as well, you know, playing in Qatar and, and in very high temperatures. Uh, so I think, I mean, a multitude of really brilliant examples, as James said, of getting it out of the ghetto. And actually, that's in part, I think, the challenge of environment journalism is to actually not get fan these fantastic environment journalists, not only get environment journalists to report on it, but get business reporters, health reporters. You know, if you take a huge organization like the BBC, where I work for, get the other beats to take this issue really seriously. So you, you don't just get it dominated by uh, the environment journalists. So I think that I think James has really put his uh, nail on the head of something really, really crucial when you think about these environment stories. And I'm sure we'll talk about it later. It's the same with biodiversity. You know, how do you get that out of the environment ghetto and get it talked about as a health issue or a water issue or other uh, development issue? Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, uh, mountaineering, for instance. So, you know, uh, tourism. So this story, when was it? Uh, three, four months ago, I did uh, on the... So, glaciers in the Everest region, fast melting and exposing dead bodies. So well, I wasn't talking about climate change there. I was talking about the concerns of uh, tour operators, expedition operators. They're worried that their clients will have to see all that and then they might be turned off. So uh, are these bodies of former climbers? Former climbers yeah. from the last 50 years or so. Wow. So more and more coming up. So uh, it was a massive hit, 4 million hits, all major broadcasters, CNN, Al Jazeera, New York Times, all followed us. 
So, yeah, stories like that. Mm. And even this morning, I was just looking, I don't know if it was <clears> yesterday <throat> that came out, this tractors and, and Dutch tractors protesters. So they protested against what they said, the government's climate goals. But then they were saying that aviation industry was escaping this scrutiny. So farmers, they are expressing the frustration that people, we produce food for you and we are being targeted. And, and there is this aviation industry. Look at that. I mean, you know, it's like they might not talk about climate change or whatever, whatever but they're talking about their frustrations. But that's the story. I mean. Yeah, I think we're seeing more and more disparate groups of people and sectors that are realizing that this is actually related to them and it's their story as well. Mona, what about yeah, fisheries? In and fisheries, the crime section is quite a popular one. Crime. Um, crime, yeah. I think there's a lot of transnational crime happening within um, international fisheries networks and national fisheries networks. And I found that, for example, one of the last reports I did, it ended up in the crime section, which was quite interesting. Um, and I also think the finance section is also a very good place to have anything to do with beneficial ownership or, um, you know, tracing of anonymous vessel owners. And the food section is also a very, very good one for fisheries, especially if you've got cases of, you know, fish being caught through dynamite fishing, um, where there's high levels of toxicity that would impact the population. So, um, but it's interesting because they ended up in those sections after the story was commissioned. So it was a decision at the editorial level mm -hmm. to fit them in to those sections. Yeah. And fishery, fishery stories ought to be more prevalent in the media, maybe, because so many people eat fish and so many people's lives depend on, on fishing and, and, you know, life at the coast. We, most, of, most of the people on the planet live near coasts, but it's yeah. sometimes difficult to get those stories into the exactly. media, isn't it? Exactly. I mean, the problem with fish, as we know, is that once it lands on our plate, it's, it's dead. So it's in an advanced state of rigor mortis. It's not very engaging. It's, you don't have an emotional connection with it. <laughs> Some, sometimes it's alive in Japan. Right? Yeah, sometimes it's eaten alive. So... And if you go to a shop and you're, you know, shopping for your dinner and there's no cod because it's been overfished, then you're just going to substitute it with salmon. And you're not going to think about the reason as to why that particular produce is not in the sea. Mm. But if you go to the coastal communities in Ghana who are very, very dependent on fishing to, for their livelihoods, you see that the impact is much more far-reaching. So it's easier... I would say within those coastal communities impacted by overfishing to to go with a fishing story. Um, yeah. but, it, but it is a challenging topic, yeah. James, you mentioned biodiversity a minute ago, and for a long time biodiversity has been the, the poor cousin to climate change in terms of coverage in the media. But then that all seemed to change in May with the, uh, the report by the IPBES, which for those who don't know is the Intergovernmental Science Policy Panel on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, possibly the longest name of an organization <laughs> that we ever have to quote. But IPBES produced its big global assessment of the state of biodiversity and its contributions to human well-being, and there was a huge amount of coverage. What was different about that, James? Oh, my God. Um, how long have you got? <laughs> I'm one of these very boring academics who will, who will talk for hours on this, but I will try and summarize it. Just to be transparent, I was lucky enough to, those of you in this space, um, as Mike said, IPBES have done a series of reports on biodiversity issues. They've done regional assessment reports. They did one on pollinators, um, uh, and they did one region, um, land degradation. And they asked me to sort of, as part of a general evaluation of their work, to look at the impact that these reports had, both in what we call legacy mainstream media and on social media. And to 
you know, in simplistic terms, the answer is very little, particularly compared to climate change. So there's been academic studies done showing that the volume of coverage of climate change is about eight times as much as biodiversity. Really interesting discussion about why that might be um, the case. But then extraordinarily, as Mike said, I don't know how many of you are following it, but in, in, in May this year, the Global Assessment uh, Report came out. And for those of you living in the UK, I don't know if you noticed, but that night on the 10 o'clock news, which is the appointment viewing, and still a lot of people watch it despite this huge change in the way we consume news. Guess what the top story on the 10 o'clock news was? It was the biodiversity report. But even more significantly, what was the second story? It was the birth of Archie, seventh in line you know, to uh, the royal throne. It would be very difficult to imagine another precedent for a story about biodiversity trumping and being the, the lead story of the 10 o'clock news. There's a fascinating backstory about how that happened. But it, it also led a lot of the BBC bulletins and we've done some analysis. It's got massive coverage around the world, not just in the UK. So I suppose to get to the point, why was that uh, the case? And I think, you know, there's no easy answer, but you do have to look at several factors. I think one is, do you have an attractive headline? So if you remember, the headline was a million species risk by, I think, by the end of the century, was it? Mm -hmm. oh, yeah. Now, that actually was very disputed, wasn't it? Was mm. it really the case? Yeah. You know, and I think a lot of scientists, correct me if I'm yeah, wrong, were yeah. sort of slightly all over that, weren't they? And was it really the truth? But anyway, that got a huge amount of travel. And they did a good job, I thought, on there was some defense of why you can say that. So that was one thing. The second thing, which, again, may be very interesting to you guys, is that they changed the... Um, language it's a topic very close to your heart i know mike biodiversity is a really difficult term isn't it and for journalists and even a concept and so i, I did some word counting and in the press release that it best put out the word biodiversity only appeared six times and the word nature appeared 13 times so they mm. sort of thought hard about um you know, using the word nature rather than the word um uh, biodiversity the third element was that they thought very strongly about visuals, and maybe we'll talk about this later, but in, in covering environment stories now, um, I think uh, talking to colleagues of yours, Naoomi, at the BBC, you, you're very often as a journalist, particularly if you want to travel on social media, which now many, many people consume it, they think, what's the picture? They think this is what's the story, which is, you know, I was a journalist for ages, and that's a big change, isn't it? You know, what's the picture? And they said they thought really hard about... Um, what pictures they were going to use, and I won't go on, and I'll just say one more thing. They did think quite hard about um, how to frame, as we, the word we use in, the, in, 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 in academic circles, how do you portray biodiversity in a way that makes it relevant to people's lives? So Rob, Bob Watson, I'm sure you know, who was then chair of it best and previously chair of IPCC, did a lot of what this is relevant to your lives because of water issues, because... Uh, for medicines, a lot of medicines come from biodiversity uh, because of various other factors. So in their press releases and a lot of their press work, they were thinking very hard, how on earth do you make this issue, biodiversity, interesting and relevant to people's lives? And I would just end because I think you know, that many of you will know this, but biodiversity is, you know, a lot, the general public find it really difficult concept. And there's this infamous or famous uh, study of public attitudes, which was done in the UK, I think, at the, about 2007. And 40% of British people thought it was a type of detergent. <laughs> you know, so that's what you're up against with that word. 
So there's all sorts of things that were, I would think there are five or six other factors you think about. But this was really, really important. And I think a game-changing amount of media coverage for that report. And I was so pleased. I cannot tell you that, that how they did their public relations work and just the media impact was huge. I think we'll, we'll see if it carries on in the, in the years ahead, especially with the big uh, biodiversity meeting in China next that's year. That's the key thing. How do you sustain it? You know, how can you... You know, maintain that level of interest where you haven't got uh, sort of the multi-dimensional aspects of climate change. I and mean, when you're competing with climate change, it's going to be a real. Mm. And you should ask Naveem how is he going to uh, cover it in the next, <laughs> or you in the next uh, 12 months. Yeah, well, uh, do you have, is it in your is it in your plans at the BBC already? Well, actually, to be, to be honest, on that report, I did kind of uh, had to bring in climate change because uh -huh. as I was discussing with you. So that report did talk about climate change. So it was not kind of brought out in isolation. So climate change, particularly in reference to nature-based solutions. Yeah. So, you know, so, so when you talk about ecosystem payment services or whatever, forests or land or water, so these are like safeguards, natural safeguards. That report said that. So as a result, on outside source telly, when I was explaining the story, so Ross Atkins did ask me, is there any connection? There is a connection. That's what this report is saying. That's what I said. So I think there's an interplay. Well, that's what ecology teaches us, is that everything is connected, isn't it? And yep. I think we'll increasingly see that. I'd like to move on now from the, the subjects to the styles of, of journalism and, and ask Mona. Uh, there's, a, there's a thin line between um, journalism sometimes and advocacy. And uh, there are questions about partiality, impartiality. How do we handle this? And given the state of the science and how much we know about, say, climate change or the biodiversity crisis, is it even responsible to try to be this neutral, uh, straight-edged journalist that, that people used to expect? Or, or is the time now for advocacy journalism all the way? Um, it's a question that was raised um, during a Francophone union uh, meeting a few years ago in Monaco when I was on a panel. And I remember not being able to respond to it. So I, I, it's good that you're bringing it up. Um, of course, it's important to maintain impartiality in all of the reporting. And you can get, the more you know, the more you're going to have a certain inkling in your views. Uh, it's still very important to gather the views of industry. I find that in fisheries reporting, for example, even if the evidence is damning and you have lots of illegal evidence, you still need to go out and get the response from the companies. And that really does elevate the reporting to another level. Even if what they're saying is wrong, it's, you know, it, they need that platform. Um, there are characters in the BBC, for example, like Richard Black, who's now become a, a very big, um, I think he's working in... in, in ECIU. Yes. So I think he was one of the kind of pioneers in British media of kind of environment reporting with a kind of stroke activism. Oh, gosh, I think he would reject that enormously. Oh, would he? Well, I mean, he's working in the NGO. Now he's in, moved in the into NGO. the NGO sector. Yeah, but I mean, yeah. he, was, he was one of the leading environment reporters. That's certainly true. And yeah. he cared, you he know. He really cared, yeah. Um, and Charles Still Clover does. as well yep. cares a lot. You're right. Um, so, so I think that you do become an activist along the way. Um, my case is quite different because I'm actually used to be an activist much more and now kind of going much more into journalism. But um, I think it's important to 
constantly come back to this point because it might end up discrediting environmental journalism if we don't apply very strict reporting rules, um, methodology. Did you, you want, want to go, James, on that? Or I'll have a go if you like. I think it, again, I'm sorry to sound slightly imbued with sophistry, but I do think it slightly depends what you mean by activism and advocacy. I think if you mean, and I think you give a very, very good answer, but I think if you mean the type of advocacy that is very, very close to what an NGO would say, and so you're an echo chamber for a type of NGO activism, I don't think that's helpful for environment journalists. I think particularly in this extraordinary context in many countries, but at least in the global north, of heavily polarised information and heavily polarised use of media sources according to your own particular predilections. If you're seen as being identified with a particular NGO uh, point of view, then I think you lack trust and credibility. However, having and I think you know it's fascinating to think about. I don't know how many of you are aware of the Guardians Keep It in the Ground campaign when they decided that they would, you know, absolutely, avowedly follow a uh, advocacy campaign with very um, clear objectives, trying to get divestment. And um, I was lucky enough to have a student working with me about what the pros and cons of that were. That is another type of advocacy journalism, and it raised a lot of debate about. It has some advantages and it has some disadvantages, but that's another type of advocacy journalism where you deliberately say we are going to campaign mm. on this issue with very concrete results. Now, you could argue for The Guardian, that's fine. Uh, you know, they've got a very clear audience who are already very interested in environment and climate change. That's one of their USPs, unique selling points. I don't massively have a problem with The Guardian doing that. I think if the BBC did it, it would be a disaster. You know, the BBC has to uh, be duly impartial. So I think in, part, in answering your question, I think it depends what type of advocacy you're talking about, what type of media organisation are, who are your audience, and it may be appropriate in certain circumstances. But my instinct, probably because I think I'm a BBC patriot, my, my instinct is very much like you were saying, Mona, I think you have to keep uh, holding powerful people to account. You have to be seen as to be independent, to be credible. One little aside, the BBC, sorry, the Guardian lost access to some of the oil companies who said, well, you've got a position. Why should yeah. I talk to you? And I think that's unfortunate. So, sorry, it's a roundabout answer, but it's complicated. <laughs> Slightly related to that and sort of connecting the, the Guardian and the BBC, maybe. And I mean, uh, the Guardian recently said it wasn't going to call climate change climate change anymore. It was going to call it climate emergency or climate crisis. Uh, it's adopted a few other changes to its terminology. The Spanish news agency FA has done the same, um, and I think at least one other media outlet in the States has done that. Uh, is this a good idea? Should everyone do it? Would the BBC do it? Are there any downsides to saying to, to dropping the climate change phrase and replacing it? Well, we, we, we did talk about this uh, in one of our meetings, and, um, and we did reckon that it's Guardian's campaign, so that's okay. Uh, as for us, for us uh, I think the BBC itself has its in-house rule now that, you know, I mean, we, we still are using climate change, but then, for example, net zero emissions. So that is what we're talking about. There is an in-house rule. All the stuff are being trained. What does it mean? And what, why is it so important? That kind of thing. And 
if you were asking, like, you know, unlike before, when we used to think about having climate skeptics to balance the story, I think we've passed that phase now. We don't need that anymore, uh, given the scientific uh, evidence and so on and so forth. But having said that, uh, if you have noticed, I'm sure you have, when you're doing scientific stories, for instance, findings, results, and all that, uh, we do try to bring in other experts who are not involved in that report to see what do they say. Uh, most of the times they've agreed. Sometimes they've had their reservations. Uh, but it's just to also to show that we, uh, we're not just getting carried away by one quarter or there, although that, that might be for public interest without any, uh, any vested interest. But still, we strive to get uh, some other people who were not involved in that report, so that kind of thing. Uh, but then again, like as Mona said, you know, I think the basic principle of, of reporting is there. I mean, we can't we can't afford to kind of not to get a response uh, from you know whoever is involved, whether it's government or uh, companies. You have to have you have to at least approach them. If, if they don't comment, they don't comment. We say that they don't comment. And when you're reporting in in Hindi or Urdu, what what phrases are you using? Is it a direct uh, Version of climate change, or how how is it? Yeah, they've, they've got their they've, they've got their own translations. Um, so I use that uh, in Nepali as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, Urdu, you might think that actually, to be honest, Urdu is supposed to be one of the hardest among all these uh, languages. But the beauty about Urdu, in, in terms of uh, journalism, is you get away with using using English terms. They're flexible in that. Mm -hmm. okay. I think that's also because if you use those bombastic <laughs> words, their audiences might not understand that. So you'll see that, you know, rather Hindi would, would, would want me to, to use precise words, most of which are from Sanskrit. Uh, but Urdu's, uh, you know, I'm okay if I say climate change. Uh, I'm okay if I said prime minister. If I forgot the word, I'll have to say prime minister, okay, but in, in Hindi, they will, they're not okay with Prime Minister. I'll have to say Pradhan Mantri. Okay. So, yeah. That's good to know. Um, James P., uh, you mentioned about the, uh, the IPBES report and it's this one million species. There have been some critiques recently of journalism, environment journalism, as being overdramatic and, and potentially eroding the public's faith in science. That's one example that popped up. Uh, the other one was the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report that came out, and there was a lot of media coverage that was saying we've got 12 years left to save the planet. Uh, is that kind of narrative useful, helpful? Uh, what are, yeah, where does it come really, from? I find it really interesting um, question. Again, in the interest of transparency, I was lucky enough to also work a little bit with the IPC on their communication of that 1.5 report. So the background to this is, as many of you will know, the IPCC brings out its 1.5 report in October 2018, I think. Sure you all covered it. And there was a lot of discussion about what the key messaging was, you know. Um, and it was, there were several that the climate scientists thought would be helpful working with climate communicators around, do you remember, unprecedented systemic change, which got a lot of headlines. Um, so there are solutions, but some of the journalists latched on to the big, do you remember the date 2030, which was in the summary for policymakers, but not quite in the format that is 12 years uh, to act. So there's been a lot of discussion, which I think is important, about does that matter? 
you know, does it matter that actually um, it's not actually consonant with, the, with what the IPC said? And of course, the scientists quite rightly are saying it does matter because it's not exactly what we meant. I mean, there's a range of options by, after 2030 by which we have to get half our, uh, our emissions down by 45 to 50%. Um, and sorry, to cut a long story short, what do we know about how that type of, uh, is it effective or not? And I think you can judge it by several uh, metrics. One is, you know, does it get uh, a lot of pickup in the media and on social media and shares? And does it, is it used by a lot of NGOs like Extinction Rebellion used it a lot? Um, uh, Alejandro Ocasio, um, what's the name, sorry, uh, AOC in, in, mm -hmm. in the US yeah. uh, used it yes. uh, a lot. And there is a body of thought that says, well, wait a minute, it's, it's sort of roughly right. We're, you know, we have to act fairly quickly. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, it's not exactly 12 years and we're not going to fill fall off a cliff in 2030. You know, you could see through the prism, what has its effect been on helping to mobilize this unprecedented amount of uh, uh, climate protests, both through Extinction Rebellion, through the uh, school strikes, and through some politicians arguing for it. And I've heard that argument. There's an opinion piece in Bloomberg today saying precisely that, that this actually is very helpful for mobilizing um, support. What's the evidence from all the social stances about how it lands on different audiences is much more complex. And at risk of oversimplifying what we know is that climate information doesn't play a huge role in determining how we engage with an issue at both at a personal level or about political involvement or indeed whether we change our minds. You know, it's the science deficit argument, just give people a bit more information and they'll all be on the streets. It just doesn't happen that way. We all interpret climate information through our value systems, through our sociocultural identity, uh, through our friendship groups, and through our values about what we think about the environment and other issues. Giving people more information, there's very little evidence <laughs> that that actually makes mm. a huge amount of difference. Mm. So it really depends on what question you're answering, asking. If, I think if it would be very hard to argue that it didn't have a role in mobilizing a certain sector of the population who were already very interested in and cared about climate change. I mean, James can talk about it much more knowledge than me, but, but in the US, even though there's evidence that concern, at least, is rising. Would a 2030 deadline make any difference to a Republican? Probably not. Are, are you with me? It depends on how it lands with what people and what you're trying to do with that information. So it's a very roundabout mm. answer. <laughs> Again, it's complicated <laughs> and nuanced. James, do you want to add anything there about the US position? There? Well, I think, you know, as journalists, we can all appreciate the value of a deadline. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's the point. Yeah. It may be good for journalists. It may be good for no, academics. Is it good for the And I think it, it does mobilize. It does, you know, it does have a way of concentrating minds. So yeah. I think the risk, of course, is that when 2030 comes around no, and our yeah. world is still here, people will say, well, what happened? You, you said, you know, we, we were told the world was going to end or something to that effect. Yeah, I mean, end of the planet so, is just yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, but, you know, I think these are probably kind of shorthand things you know, politicians and activists have, have to use probably, and I can understand why they do it. I think for us as journalists, we, you know, we need to, you know, okay. stick with the science and say, well, yes, by 2030, the IPCC is saying we have to be at this, you know, 45% reductions in order to be on track to avoid two-degree warming. Um, 
So, uh, but you know, in general, uh, this whole issue of advocacy and and you know, it, I, as you can imagine, it's something we we debate and discuss all the time. We have to deal with. Uh, I think, like all of you, I tend to be more old school and uh, feel like you know we have to maintain our credibility. But I will say, in my work, especially when I, I was a journalist in Asia for a decade, and I saw some advocacy journalists, and they did some amazing work, and they had really uh, incredible impact on on moving moving people on issues. So, you know, I respect. I think there's room for everyone, actually, and even within a, a single media outlet, you've got opinion pages and you've got news pages, and and there's a you know there's a sharp distinction between the two. No no better example that in the Wall Street Journal, where you have an, an editorial page that is you know very skeptical about climate change, but you have good reporters mm. doing doing good good stories. So, yeah. Can I quickly uh, add into this? Like, so when you're talking about things like that, 2030, so is that when things come? I think there's also a scope. I mean, the, the danger about you know misinterpretation or misinformation and all that. But I think there's also a scope of explaining. So one of the things that the BBC, uh, our analytic tools, have found is that explainers do pretty well with audiences. So because this is there, so what does it mean? What is this 2030 all about? If you put out an explainer properly, not just I'm not just talking about reference in a story, mm. but a proper explainer on that particular topic, then that kind of gets tends to get a lot of audiences, and then you know you also get your point across and you kind of treat it properly. Uh, unlike you know what we used to do before that there's a line there in the story and then you know that is that's it I think that's not that that's not what it is as a matter of fact more and more explainers are being appreciated our audiences are you know they get engaged they, they appreciate this and, and and on issues like this we find that there's this massive scope yeah and I think there's generally a lot more science literacy among journalists than, than there was a few years ago even. I just want to also touch on the point that James said he's quite rightly that this science has shown that Climate information by itself, or information on any of these topics by itself, won't necessarily drive people to make changes. But I think it is definitely part of the solution. I mean, to, you know, it's it's necessary but not sufficient. Yeah, I think the issue right. there is yeah. the word by itself. Yeah. And I, I don't know if you're going to come on to this to, to discuss it, but mm -hmm. you know, information plus solutions. Yeah. You know, in very crude terms, is the way to go. And the problem is that you know, there's a lot of again research done showing that, yes, there's a movement towards more solution-based coverage, but the combination of this is the problem and this is what you can do about it, there's very, very little about that. So I think um, that's the problem. But you may argue, well, that's not the role of journalism. You know, it's, it's creeping in again to mm -hmm. advocacy. But I think if you're discussing options rather than saying this is the right option or you're reflecting a diversity of opinion about policy options in the context of, I don't know, a new report on the IPCC. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Mm. But I, th I think the problem is that the doom and gloom, I didn't really answer your question, the doom and gloom narrative on its own is shown to be counterproductive if your aim by giving people information is mobilization and emotional engagement and behavior change. You know, to, it promotes fear for most people. And again, you know, you have a huge diversity of audience, but for many people, it provokes feelings of fear and guilt. And fear and guilt are not on the whole good motivators of change in any area of life, are they? <laughs> well, I am totally driven by guilt, but... Tell us more. Flying, God, Jesus. 
guilt is that anyway i'd like to move on a little bit to some of the challenges that journalists face and of course interpreting science and even interviewing scientists can be you know quite a hard job but a lot of environment journalists are doing much more they're dealing with criminals criminal networks corrupt politicians and and it's really very dangerous so i think now uh, is it more dangerous now than being a war correspondent, being an environment journalist? <laughs> Certainly there have been environment journalists threatened, uh, beaten up and murdered in dozens of countries in the last few years. Mona, what, you know, what can we do um, to make sure that people are safe, especially yeah. people that EJN is working with around the world in some countries where press freedom isn't really high on the agenda? Yeah. I think that um, we could learn a lot from the practicalities adopted by conflict um, reporters. So, for example, the Mary Colvin network of journalists um, targets women journalists in the Middle East and North Africa region, and they've got really great kits which provide, um, you know, encryption information, but also basic protection information if you're attending a protest or, um, you know, uh, just different ways that you can conduct your work in a safe environment. And what I've found um, working in West Africa with a lot of the the women journalists there who just happen to be women journalists. What I'm finding in West Africa is that the ones that are doing the, the great work and the most intrepid happen to be women, and I'm not quite sure why. But um, so it was very important for me to be able to, you know, to have a kind of situation where we could be collaborating but over safe platforms and that they could communicate with me without self-censorship. So the Mary Colvin network really helped me um, because they've got press kits in French and English to distribute those to the female journalists I work with. And interestingly, they've taken, they've taken it quite well, but they're also teaching others. So I think peer-to-peer -peer education is, is really the way forward, um, especially in, in West Africa. Um, it's been proven that peer-to-peer -peer education is, is the way forward. So, um, and coming back to the kind of the women element, I think women are vulnerable, and that's a fact, but not because of their gender, but because they might not receive the information that is out there because they're not part of a network which includes women. So maybe journalist networks are quite male-driven, they might be intimidating, they might not include women. So I think that's more where the problem is. It's not the gender, I just think it's more that they might not have access to the information. Um, but definitely I think that at least using basic encryption during collaborative uh, investigations is, is, is in essential. Um. There's a, another area that journalists are starting to be targeted by, and it's by activists. And um, recently, I'd say in the last month, we've seen Extinction Rebellion protesting outside the New York Times, the Washington Post, and Fox News, telling them to improve their coverage of climate change. We've seen um, a, a Danish newspaper has just said it's going to stop doing any fossil fuel advertising from 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 now uh, in response to people demanding that they take the, these adverts out of the newspaper. So, James, is uh, is a media outlet ever a legitimate target for a, a non-violent protest? I would say so. Sure, why not? The AP can protest against investing, you know, pension funds investing in, in fossil fuels. You can certainly. Uh, you know, protest media coverage, not just media coverage, but of course the business operations like the advertising. I know when I worked at a newspaper in Asia, I would be covering the environment and I'd see like full page ads for the national oil company or the cement <coughs> manufacturer. And it's like, 
Mm. You know, I, it was some anyway. But uh, I think yeah, and and now I would say some some media outlets are more legitimate targets than others. Uh, you know, some uh, like I said uh, in recent years, I think the New York Times has done a pretty good job of, of cover they've really ramped up their coverage ever since Trump was elected and they created a climate desk. But it's interesting. We had, uh, I teach at, at UC Berkeley, I teach a class on uh, environmental reporting, and we had the de the um, editor of the New York Times came and spoke to, on campus, and he, uh, he um, his name is Dean Baquet, and uh, kind of defended their coverage of climate change, but he did acknowledge on, on you know, further questioning uh, that, you know, they could be doing a better job, like they have the climate desk, but it's their other beats, the politics beat and the business beat. Those are areas where, you know, they could probably, he acknowledged they could probably mm. be doing a better job there. So. I think we saw what's possible a couple of weeks ago when The Economist produced uh, what, called, what they called it the climate issue, and uh -huh. it was all throughout the whole of the, the edition, climate change stories right. touching on everything. Um, and it, it really is revealing that, in fact, yes, it's, it's there. If you look hard enough, you can find those stories. I could just add a quick aside. I don't know how many of you pulled over the UK Climate Change Committee report on reaching net zero. But there was, a, for me, a killer statistic there. And it was that 62% of the changes that we need in the UK are based on societal change or personal change. So that, to me, prompts a huge discussion about how are you going to get political process and an individual process in support of those type of societal changes. And where is the coverage of that? Where is, well, there's a lot of academic work, and I would say this, but, you know, to, to me, it's, it's what you were referring, the, the sort of political change and the finance flow change and the individual change and how you get it should be now just as important for environment journalists and other journalists as, you know, the science. I would argue that probably, you know, of course there are lots of uncertainties in science, but as you were saying, there've been a lot of the science is now firmed up. Uh, you know, do we really? How much more do we need to know? Mm, is, yeah. is what? I, but we need to know an awful lot about how you take people with you on this journey to a low carbon development. And I, I would love to see much more coverage by political correspondents or business correspondents or other correspondents at the BBC. When was the last time the business correspondent at the BBC did a piece? on how, you change, how you're going to change financial flows or a politics correspondent, how are we going to get political consensus mm. around. That's, to me, the urgency. And I totally agree with what James is saying. That you know, I think the New York Times on the whole is doing a great job. I think people like Naveen and you and everybody is doing a great job in environment reporting. How do you get this consensus more uh, and this urgency uh, around other areas of reporting? I think some of it will be... Uh economics as well, the, Definitely. how much is this going to cost us and how much is it going to cost us if we do nothing? You know? but in, sorry, I'm talking far too much, but they are, they were too, you do correct me if I'm wrong, I think, it, what's the name of the gas and energy company in California? PG&E. And they collapsed and they went bankrupt. Because yeah. one a huge factor was they just had not sort of factored in the effect of all the droughts and the fires. Yeah, so, so they, they were found, you know, they, it was found that they helped spark Many of the wildfires, because of poor maintenance of their lines, they're now liable for the damages caused by these wildfires, and they've gone bankrupt. And it was the same in Swindon when Honda uh, made the decision to, do you remember, to withdraw from making 
cars in Swindon. One of the angles that didn't really get covered very much was because the huge shift that there's going to be in the next five to ten years to electric cars. That is a, you know, a sort of climate change story, isn't it? And yet that element wasn't invoked. So it's this business element. I think some sectors of the economy just have gotten very little coverage. The cement industry yeah. by itself is responsible for 8% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions. If it was a country, it would be the third third largest emitter. But you never see anything about that. Uh, real estate. I mean, real estate, you know, it plays a very important role. It can, you know, California passed a law recently that all new houses have to have solar panels. Uh, Berkeley, near where I live, they just passed a very interesting ordinance that said all new house, no, no natural gas hookups to all new, new houses. This is important not just for climate change purposes, but also safety reasons, because we're in an earthquake zone. And so, you know, a lot, when there's a big earthquake, the, fire, the gas lines break, and that's how you get a lot of fires. So, uh, so there are lots of different. Uh, yeah, in addition to that, uh, I partly again, because I do a lot of work around the, the media representation of the role of animal agriculture in greenhouse gas emissions. There was very little coverage historically. It's getting changing. But if you compare how much scrutiny Exxon, BP, Shell, come under, rightly, and then how much scrutiny JBS, Tyson, all these big animal agriculture yeah. com meat companies who also put, I know it's very dispute how you calculate their emissions, but they're quite clearly huge emission emitters. Where is the scrutiny? Where is the holding of power of big meat companies? I, I don't know enough about big fishing industry, but I can't mm -hmm. believe that there aren't similar issues there. It's that escaping, you know, we, we, we are obsessed, I think, with oil and gas companies to the expense of... And planes of as well, aviation. Planes, yeah, aviation, but, you know, animal agriculture, what is it? Depends on the country, but 15% of all emissions? 25% of global emissions, agriculture, livestock, and food. land use change. Land use yeah. change. Yeah. You know, who is, you know, where are the big companies being held to account there? Discuss. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to, just to ask another quick question about all of this bad news that we keep seeing. And as journalists, if you're constantly exposed to more and more uh, terrible prophecies of doom from scientists or you know from the NGO sector, how do you how do you cope with that? There's there's a, a rising um, a, a rising field of study of, of eco grief. Um, children are, are being described as suffering from eco grief. Many people working in this sector climate change scientists, NGO people, and, and others are also self-declaring and writing long long articles about it themselves. What is it like to be a journalist and be confronted with this on a daily basis, and, and how do you cope? I mean, oh, it's, it's becoming challenging. So it's like, you know, so this term climate anxiety, for instance, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I think the thing is, in a way, you just, you get used to it. <laughs> Frankly, but when you when you reflect, then yeah, sometimes it's too much. Uh, so many press statements, so many reports within a span of like, particularly in the run-up to when you have, for example, the UN climate conference. So you'll see that you know these reports keep on building up, coming up to you, and you can't ignore them. You'll have to read them. Uh, but then again, like, it's it's too much, and particularly also for for a reporter like me who's on the ground as well, and where you see actual things happening, it can be very, very overwhelming at times. You know, like if you see a place where, which was, you know, a climate change plan did identify this place landslide prone, and yet nothing was done, and then you see that 
you know, 150 people, most of them children, were buried in that landslide area, and I had to report from there. Uh, it's very painful, very difficult, um, sharing, you know, I mean, first of all, getting to hear all the stories, you know, uh, but then I think uh, solution-focused journalism, I think, is is a kind of leeway. So, so what do we do about it then? Mm -hmm. And uh, I think in that the scientific community has also helped us by changing their 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 way of coming out. So it's not just the hardcore, you know, those reports full of jargons, but then also that that executive summary, in a language that we can clearly understand and communicate. Uh, so that IPCC 1.5, for instance, you know, they talked about like massive change in lifestyle. So that's what it said. And that was kind of easy for me to kind of relate. So kind of solution focused thing. But what could you do? I mean, you have to live with this. So these, these, these predictions. And then the thing is, again, like the, the, the predictions are, are going up, like what was compared to what was said before. So the revised updates going up. And then the challenge is again like when I'm on a set explaining the presenter, so he or she would ask me yet again, what is this? Then uh, that challenge, mm -hmm. you know, and then so we talked about this 20304 instance. So why does it matter? So again, like that, that those figures there, so peak emissions, what is it, you know, cracking that nut? And why does it matter to us? For instance, this IPCC Ocean and Cryosphere Report, I had to explain the Urdu service. So, for example, audiences in Pakistan, why should they worry? So it's just, so I had to tell them it's just not for coastal people. The, the climate system, the weather is being influenced by, by that, that change in, in the water. So people far away from you know, coastal areas need to worry and you, know, you have to relate. Mm -hmm. So again, like, yeah, what could you do? It's gloom and doom, but if you had even a slight kind of hint that something can be done, this is what they're saying. I, I, I tend to, I strive to add that quickly mm -hmm. so that it's not just gloom and doom. There are hopes as well. Uh, yeah. But I think, again, just looking at media coverage in general, and you guys know better than I do, but the stats suggest that the percentage of climate change articles that are about positive stories of adaptation, for example, is very, very low indeed. So I think, you know, for EJN and other networks really trying to dig out stories of hope about people adapting or uh, you know, uh, changing their way of behaviour successfully would be absolute priority. I know there's some great reporting, but there's not enough. You know, so, and, and the stats do suggest that. Mm -hmm. I think it's important um, to feel the pessimism as a journalist because otherwise you're not going to be putting in the hours needed to come back to the subject again and again, and you're not going to develop that expertise. Um, one thing that I found in, in fisheries journalism is that if you capture the testimonies of, let's say, the plight of the fishermen, which is very moving, um, and they don't have a platform in which they can express what's happening to them. But if you capture their testimony and then it's featured in an international report or even a local one, you're, you're restoring the dignity of that person. So I think that even though you can have pessimistic, let's say, story, you're also restoring the dignity of the person 
impacted. And I think that that's a very powerful tool. And I've witnessed that, especially over the last three years, um, that, you know, you come back to the communities and then you tell them, hey, we wrote this story about what you, you know, what happened to you. And it really does, you know, help them. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, the pessimism is here to stay. So the question is, how are we going to reinvent the pessimism? Um, you know, so it's not it's not going anywhere. Yeah. So we have to think about how to address that, I think. I think there's one other little uh, thing I would add, which I'm very, very interested in, is the role of humour. I don't think it's, it's, it's very difficult in text-based reporting or visual reporting, but certainly in chat shows mm -hmm. in, in the US and um, uh, Germany. It's interesting, again, talking to the IPBES people, they, put a, they were incredibly proud that they got sort of biodiversity, lots of nature, lots, I think they called it, onto the John Oliver show uh -huh, and two yeah, other yeah. American shows, I forget their names, and the same thing in Germany. And do you remember that great scene in the John Oliver that's gone viral where they're, they're, they have a climate denier in the studio, and they say, now we're going to bring in some climate scientists just to balance it. And they bring in like 99, <laughs> and they all crowd the room. And it's so funny. And it just brilliantly brings the point, you know, just how isolated the denial is. So, and this, there's a, an academic called Max Boykoff, who's very prominent in this area, who's, who's doing, he's written a book on the role of humour in climate change narratives, in yeah. part, only in part. I, I mean, I don't want to trivialise the. No, Marina, humor you is important. I mean, you know, yeah. but it's difficult to get into a, you know, a fisheries story or, a, or a, what you're talking about. But I think in chat shows or broadcast, it's much easier, and it's a real, you know, people really relate to it. And the key thing is it, it crosses political division. So even if you may be, you know, right leaning and don't care about the environment, you can still laugh at it and think, oh, that's mm. funny. It's uh, a bit of a leveler, isn't it? Yeah, uh, but it's it's difficult to do. <laughs> I think we're almost out of time. Does anyone in the audience have any questions? Sure. So I just wonder whether the panel, the pessimism, I, I get that, because there's lots of data coming out that's a bit alarming, and lots of visuals as well that's a bit alarming. And if you're just a member of the public on the street, I think it's hard to deal with. I was quite taken with the, what it feels like to be in the shoes of someone carrying that knowledge, whether you're a scientist or a journalist, not an easy thing to do. But just very personally, from my sense of, you know, I'm kind of out there on an inquiry, I was saying to you earlier, generally that's why I'm here. I've got a sense that actually we might be approaching a tipping point of public consciousness, where the receptiveness to what's being written and what's being put out there, whatever the source, whatever the emphasis, it does feel to me like it might, it might just be changing. It might be a very UK-based um, perspective, because that's, you know, that's where I am. Um, I think that there is a, I'm in the world of um, relatively big business as well, and believe me, there is some profound change taking place inside businesses for lots of reasons, one of which is obviously pure self-interest, which is we want to be competitive and survive, but this sensitivity to what stakeholders think about the way we're going about our business <clears throat> is really changing profoundly from a family business environment. Family business used to be really well known for being sort of considerate, basically. But now we're way off. The, the, the big public companies are way ahead in terms of how they're rated in that way. And I think it's because the pennies dropped. But actually, they can't carry on doing things the way they are. And um, it might be self-interested, but the fact is they're getting their house in order to some extent. And a simple example would be 
There's an organization called We Mean Business that coordinated a business response prior to the New York Climate Summit. And 90 gigantic global corporations have signed up to a very demanding net zero target by 2050. This is a very positive thing. And they employ a lot of people and they influence a lot of people. So it's just one example of the way I think the system is, I'm, I'm optimistic, actually. I think that the system is changing. In fact, despite yeah. all the negativity and the difficulty. We need, we need optimism, too. Yeah, yeah, but I think I think you're right. It's slightly more objective. We mean business is an incredibly important initiative, and my wife is in that space as well, so I know a bit about it. But the problem is, it is still not every big company, or uh, there's many, many companies that still aren't on that journey, and that's the challenge. And the other, I mean, it's, we are in the UK, but if you're interested, the Cardiff University have um, just started a new centre, which I would really monitor, called the Centre for Climate Change and Societal Transformations, and they're looking at, at um, how we get, what I was talking about earlier, these societal transformations. But they did a survey. Yeah. Uh, did you see it? I'm, I'm on their advisory. Oh, sorry. You know what about it. The others don't know about it. But anyway, the survey came out it's saying this the highest level of public urgency. You, know, you can measure lots of things in the survey, but this is public's perceptions of how urgent it was to take action in the UK. The problem is they go up and down, you know, historically. And James, again, you'll know much more now, but there's some evidence from the US by several different metrics of, of public opinion. These are historically yeah. high levels of concern about climate change. It's really interesting why that might be the case. But we are, I think we are right. And I know this is very Anglosphere-based, but in, at least in some Western countries, certainly true of Scandinavia, certainly true of Germany as well, there, there's a sense, isn't there, that something is changing, but it's, it's delivering, you know, bloody emissions, you know, still going up. That's the problem. And how the hell are we going to get them down? It's really important to um, this thing about balance. That, that burden and the mental health challenges around that burden, really, really important, I think. So to hear good good news like that for everybody is sort of nourishing in a way. And we, I think everybody everybody needs that. It's not, it's not always a... You're right. I think you're absolutely right. I think, uh, right, May, just uh, we kind of face a, a bit of a barrier because traditionally there's this notion in in media that if it bleeds, it leads, you know, bad news sells, big headlines. Uh, but there is now a stronger push for solutions journalism, constructive journalism, sometimes it's called. And uh, I think it's making headway. Uh, and, and actually, you know, it turns out when you look at audience numbers, actually the solutions stories is often do better very than, you know, some the other kind. So the issue is can we convince uh, you know, the, the gatekeepers of the media about that, but I think we are making headway. Can I quickly add on this, like, you know, we, 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 as James said earlier about this adaptation thing, so, so that the, the, the audiences in that part of the world, the developing world, so to say, so this, this is where, like, you know, when negotiators come back from these meetings or interpret IPCC reports and all that, so the focus has been on mitigation all the time, most of the time. Whereas the agenda for, for that part of the world, it's like, you know, it, 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 it's, if not more, at least parallel to that should have been an adaptation. Because scientific communities, they have kind of said this repeatedly that even if you stopped all the emissions today because of what's already been done, that, that level, you know, you'll have to see those, those inevitable changes, those impacts. So you have to be prepared. I think that connection with the audiences so that, that, in that part of the world, so what is to be done? I think that will connect. Otherwise, the broad brush that, you know, the top line that, okay, we've got 2030, so 45%, you know, we are three times down now, we need to do three more times. 
what does it what does it mean for for that audience in Pakistan, or say in a remote village in in Vietnam, you know? So they they want they want to talk about adaptation. They know that this is going to happen. So what can be done about it? So I kind of try to struggle to to explain that at times. Um, and I try at least, but I think that's where it is. Otherwise, negotiators or experts, they end up talking about mitigation and it's kind of lost uh, in a way. I think, James, I think maybe 10 years or so ago, you, you looked at the IPCC reports. The one on mitigation got coverage and the one on adaptation was barely touched, right? Yeah. Well, not barely. I mean, there was, there was a big difference. And the, but that's partly, it's not just the subject matter, it's partly the timing of how they're released. IPCC one on mitigation comes out first, and by that time, journalists. Yeah, the But you're right. I think I mean, it's great that what Naveen is doing, that adaptation is such an important element, but uh, it's a much more. Can you, can you remember a story that you have read recently that start on climate change, that starts with a community or a government implementing a solution? When does it lead a solution? Mm. I may be wrong. Well, when there are policies passed, like like I mentioned, this policy in, in Berkeley where they they uh, stop yeah. you know, new houses, you know, yeah. it's a pretty, I would think it's a pretty small percentage. It is a small percentage. Twenty uh, percent of climate finance, for instance, has gone for adaptation just for twenty percent, just twenty percent. Some, sometimes. I'm sorry, and of that, you know, the, the 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 complaint from these least developed countries, forty-seven of them most of them in Africa, what they say is the lion's share of even that 20% is, is going to fast emerging economies. Yeah. Whereas scientists say those countries, those people, those communities on the front line, they need it. Mm -hmm. They need it. Sounds like a good story. <laughs> <laughs> Got another question here on the front row. Hi, Jesse from the Foundation. Um, you mentioned the um, Guardian Star Guide earlier and those kind of phrases an emergency climate crisis were obviously not kind of invented by, but popularised by XR and the school strikes and, and other things. As journalists, where do you get most of your language cues from? And can we do better to anticipate those kind of changes in language in order that we are connecting more directly with readers? I think it's a climate change question. Well, I mean, I, I just, uh, I mean, I've been in journalism for 10 years, but on the IPCC, it was interesting working on their, how they communicated, and they went through even mitigation. Most people wouldn't understand that, yeah. would they? And so there was a big effort to try and get the IPCC scientists who were facing the media to really talk in terms of what, you know, with, with language that people uh, understood. But they do. I think it's a climate, you know, a science communication issue, and I don't really blame the climate scientists because, if for ages, who are they really trying to impress with their science? They're trying to impress their peers, aren't yeah, they? Exactly. They're not trying to, you know, it's not a priority to think really hard about how you communicate it. However, having said that, I, you know, I was at Oxford. We got 700 people at Oxford University studying climate change, and there is a shift. In really, in people really, and you were mentioning it. I think a lot of climate scientists who are on cutting edge. I don't know if it's the same with fisheries. Are really thinking hard. How do I explain this? And I think the risk, again, it's slightly different because I'm very keen on, you know, the risk metaphor of, uh, is, is really helpful instead of uncertainty. You know, risk management. People do understand risk, particularly policymakers. But it's not really answering your question. I think. Naveen and, and, and Mona would answer it better, but certainly when I was a journalist, he really thought hard, but 
but I think it has to start with the climate scientists actually about thinking because they've got to own it uh, and and really um, uh, you know the gen most climate scientists would not be in favour of what the Guardian did correct and it's pretty obvious by climate change to them it's quite a technical term <laughs> describing what's happening if you suddenly start calling it climate emergency well you know, we, we, what's that yeah because <laughs> emergency is very hard to define isn't it exactly you know and yeah. uh, and, it, and it's back to this 2030 you know we what sort of emergency is and how do we respond to it is, uh, so, anyway. i think we need to pay more attention to the schools the journalism schools especially uh, I don't think enough attention goes into, I mean, at least most journalists, many journalists still rise up through through university, uh, and uh, but a lot of uh, schools, as far as I can tell, they don't teach these subjects necessarily. How do you cover climate change? And I think we could be supporting that and doing that a lot more. And we, in our class on environmental reporting, we have a whole session on jargon. You know, what is jargon? go through a story what you know what words should you not be using here what you know and what alternative words that can you use that if you're explaining to your own grandmother or your daughter or or whoever a person on the street what, what can you use in, instead so I think that's where we, we need to be paying more attention uh, Naveen can talk about this BBC is putting every single its journalist through a, a module on climate change part of which is thinking about language isn't it if I understand right yes uh, yeah so there's this, this training I'm one of the trainers now within the BBC so this net zero thing but uh, to answer your question like I think one of the one of the one of the ideas how you tackle with that is also for example in our online stories and that's not might not be so easy with radio or television but we've got this glossary of items glossary of you know those 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 words that you really you can't avoid but but you need to understand them so so you've got a link there, hyperlink, or a box for that matter, and then quickly you could see what are they about. And also, can I quickly mention you how times have changed? Like five years ago, I used to be I used to be attacked by deniers, like you know, why are you talking about this that? But now, can you believe I'm getting letters or or, or my social media? Why are you even talking about two zero five zero or two one zero zero? Now it's happening. <laughs> climate crisis. Call it climate climate crisis. You know, yeah, I'm kind of, yeah, they're, they're coming to me, it's, it's changed. Just on the language thing as well, I don't know if you're familiar with Vox, um, they do, I think they do, I don't know what you think, James, yeah. but I think they do really good explainers in yeah. language that people really understand. If, you have, if you're not familiar with them, I think they do fantastic. Yeah, and also I was suggesting earlier, that you see, the thing is, the, the IPCC reports, so all these reports, again, to those audiences, what does it mean? What would they understand? My take would be, the thing is, Big organizations would use a broad brush. What's the, what's the bottom line? What does it say? But what would it mean for those far-flung villages or those communities? I think the trick here is if journalists, even if they try to, they don't get it. Get it. I go to all those villages and talk to people, so that's their complaint. So I think the thing is, the, the, the challenge here is to get that chapter, that relevant chapter, translated into that local language so that that communicator understands it and relates it to those audiences. That, I think, uh, needs to be done as urgently as possible. Otherwise, again, like, you know, you're lost. That those journalists are still struggling to find out. You know, I, we saw the same report a few months ago. What is this now? There might be new things. Those mm -hmm. regions, those there's, chapters. There's a very famous academic study um, on the... I don't necessarily agree that... On, you know, the summary for policy makers the IPCC does? They did a study on what you needed to understand it. And it came out saying, you know, you need a PhD. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, I still think there's it's not an clear. awfully long way to go. And I was involved in a project trying to explain it to business sectors. And, you know, 
you really need it. Yeah, that, that, so just take them as an audience of the, the business community. That, that in my own, because I'm a, in my own way, an activist probably with a small A, but within that community. Um, so I'm trying to influence my family partners and the enterprise that I'm involved in around this. And that frame of opportunity and risk is a much better frame. It really is. If I talk about environment, the listening is what it is. But as soon as you talk about opportunity and risk, it's in their lexicon, it's in their language, it's sort of something that they can in, engage with. And the, I think that pattern, and I like what you were saying about local as well, where it's about relatedness. Yeah. If we want That's to absolutely engage. key. You know, knowing your audience, adapting those key messages to your audience yeah. is, is a basic starting point, to be honest. I think we've got time for just one more question. Is that correct? Yeah, sure. Yeah, um, thank you for the panelists. Um, my question came out, I think, initially from the discussion around the tension between advocacy and journalism, and also some of what Mona was saying. Uh, and it made me kind of reflect or wonder if that distinction that we were sort of talk, that you were talking about, um, is potentially like the luxury of um, luxury <laughs> of uh, a person or one, a journalist or an advocate who is in a space where they relatively have more of a voice. So my mind went to, you know, someone in the Pacific who writes articles when they're given the opportunity, they're an advocate, they're a mother, they run a business, they're a community leader, and it probably depends which day you get them on as to whether they're an advocate, an advocate or a journalist. Um, I'm sure within within this room, and, you know, within the panelists, there's a lot, uh, and I can tell, and obviously what I know about EJM, um, a lot is done to centre the voices of those people who have less of a voice and who are disproportionately affected by climate change, by diversity, a lack of diversity. Um, but yeah, I'm interested to know what you think about those trends, you know, in the sector generally. I heard a statistic recently that I think of the scientists quoted in, um, in articles, and this is scientists generally, 16% of them were women. And of course, within that 16%, we can um, suppose that even less women of colour, etc. Et so, yeah, um, particularly probably interested about Indigenous voices and, um, yeah, maybe how you've seen that improve and what you think needs to happen in order to, to better sense those. You mean to diversify the voices? Um, I think, yeah, I mean, social media is obviously a great platform to self-publish if that's what you felt like doing. Um, in the case of Africa, community radios and community-led media are, are still prevalent and they still work. Um, I don't know if we'll ever really get to the stage where everybody has a voice because uh, what I found, for example, I'll give you a good example. I've captured recently you know, some voices of fishermen that were giving some very strong quotes about a particular issue. And when I included it in the story, the editor um, removed them because even though they were coming from the field, they just didn't fit into kind of the nice wording of maybe a European scientist or a Europe, you know, European fisherman or something like that. So um, perhaps the way that those communities express themselves don't necessarily fit into uh, certain types of publications or media. So, um, and that's, that's just a reality that maybe we will overcome. But I think with social media, which is a cliche to kind of reference that, but effectively people could express um, their opinions through community-led social media platforms, perhaps. I don't know if that answers your, your question, but um, yeah. Yeah, I think for me, I think, it, again, it depends on the media organization and that you're talking about. I think the 
we haven't thought about it, but these sort of structural changes going on to these mainstream media and the amount of money they have to send reporters out to, say, the Pacific Islanders is a real, real problem now. Um, has been for some some years, and so that's why EGEN is so really significant. The BBC World Service is an exception, I think, because it's got enough resources to send people like you to these areas. But even the Guardian you know, is really struggling, and so it is reliant on other voices and other um, other journalists. I do think, though, it's still a huge issue. When we did the Itbest reports, this was just mainstream media. Um, the diversity of voices was appalling, really. And yet there were a lot of scientists, including women scientists, who were equally able to comment. And to be fair to them, in this time round, they did do a lot more diverse, diversified voices. But you, you really have got to sort of get on the gender and think about particularly women scientists having an equal voice, as, as um, particularly from developing countries. And they have changed, but it took quite a journey to get there. I would just say that um, now really as part of our activities and our objectives at the Earth Journalism Network, we make, you know, empowering women and including more women's voices and including more stories by women. That's part of our, our, our mission uh, strategy and our objectives. So it's something we've kind of built up over time, uh, and I think we're doing better at it now than we did before. And not, not just women, but also, uh, you know, indigenous peoples and youth as well. Uh, we're not we're not perfect, and uh, I think we still got a long way to go. And a lot of times we're constrained by our resources and what we're able to do. But I think we're making some headway. And I'd also just add, you know, kind of as a final, you know, thinking, you know, where we're going to be 15 years from now, or, you know, where are we going to be? Where are we going to be? God. Well, I mean, where do people get their media from nowadays? You know. When I look at my kids, or you know, or the younger generation, they they wouldn't see or hear, or read news at all, except when they're, I'm I'm driving them in the car and I've got national public radio on. You know, that's the only time they they hear the news. They get all their information from YouTube, from social media. And they don't really follow social media, but whatever it is online, maybe it's a gaming site, or maybe it's a you know celebrity meme or something. That's where they're getting the news from. And I think for, for us, as, you know, information providers and communicators, we need to start, you know, thinking about how we engage these new sources of media. But I do think, in some ways, it's, it's obviously very challenging, but also it's kind of like a new playing field where, for instance, women might have a stronger say in the future than they do now. It's possible. Uh, so those are some of the things we're trying to grapple with uh, at EJN and introduce, and um, it's going to be very interesting how, how we can do that. Thanks, James. I think we are actually out of time now, so I'd like to thank um, all of the panelists for their contributions and everyone in the audience for listening so attentively. And just say congratulations, James, on thank 15 you. years yeah. of excellent work, and Thanks here's, to, here's to the next 15. Yeah.